Let's pray. I think we need that. Father, thank you that you do love us. Help us to understand what this has to do with us. Help us to understand what you have to do with us. Help us to understand how much you love us. Help us to understand that that you want to be our God. Help us to be your people. Speak to us now. As you spoke, as you acted, and as your people recorded what you said and did. May it speak into our lives today. And may you keep acting in them today. Use what I say, Lord, to prompt us to understand what you said and who you are and who we are because of that. Amen. Um, This is an interesting situation. As Pam said, they've crossed out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Incredible event there. Uh, the, The angel of death passing through the land of Egypt, killing all the firstborn sons. The only ones surviving are those who are in the Israelite houses where they've got blood on the doorposts and the lintels, and they survive, and, and they share a Passover meal, a, a meal celebrating God's rescue, and they get out of Egypt, and eventually after about a year or two, uh, I think it's about a year, they arrive at, at Mount Sinai where, where they celebrate Passover again. They remember what God had done the year before. They, they remember how he had rescued them. They, they eat a, a, a lamb. They eat the same food. They, it's just rich with symbolism of what God has done and where they've come from. They, they receive the law and then they wander and they get to the edge of the land and they go, well, this is too hard. God's not big enough. We certainly can't win. And so God says, well, if that's the case, then you're not coming in. And they go and they wander through the land of Canaan. Well, not through the land of Canaan. They wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And this is now where we find them. They've eventually come to the end. Joshua has led them across. God took them, God took them across the Jordan River during the flooding season where the river was in a torrent. They've crossed over. They've set up a monument, which we looked at last week. And there they find themselves at Gilgal. And they have this, this double episode of circumcision and Passover. Of the entire generation that, that had wandered in the wilderness. And by that I mean those... Uh, particularly the fighting men 20 years or older of that entire group of people, the only two that entered the land properly, apart from the 10 spies who went back and said, the only two that entered the land were Joshua and a bloke called Caleb. All of these people who had arrived at the land 40 years previously had the sign that they were God's people. That's, that's what circumcision is. It's a sign of belonging. But a sign is a sign. If you go out to, um, if you were planning on visiting us today, and this is your first time ever, and you were driving down Dampier Drive, and you saw a sign that said, Baptist Church. And you parked your car, and you got out there, and after half an hour, you go, where is everybody? And you left. You'd be a fool. Because the sign is not the destination. The sign is a sign. This generation, they had the sign that they belonged to God, but, but they, they had refused to trust Him. The, the, the sign that they were God's people was nothing but a sign. God isn't for us just because we, we do the right things, because we practice the right rites, because we go to church, because we do whatever. God is for those 
who actually trust Him. God's not impressed if we pray every day. God's not impressed if you go to church every week. God's not impressed if you cast out demons. God's not impressed if you do any of these wonderful things. He's not impressed if you speak in tongues. He's not impressed if you, uh, if you prophesy. He's not impressed of all of these things. If you don't actually trust Him and love Him. Paul says, it's like a hollow, clanging cymbal. Or a gong. It's actually empty. Because the sign is just a sign and it's useless without the destination. During the, the wanderings in the desert, the Israelites had neglected to impart this sign to their children. And they'd also neglected to celebrate Passover for at least 39 years. They'd forgotten to remember how God had rescued them. Not practicing these rites, well, especially circumcision, was at best negligence. At worst, it was a matter of disobedience. Saying, I won't do that. In effect, what they were saying is, I don't want to associate my children with that God. Genesis 17.14 said that if they weren't circumcised, they weren't part of the people of God. A sign is just a sign, but, but these guys didn't want anything to do with it. And if you don't want anything to do with a sign, you're never going to find the destination, are you? Perhaps they were thinking, God hasn't come through for us. Why would I inflict God on my children? Look at us, we're in the desert for 40 years. We're having to eat the same food every day. Manna pilaf for dinner. Puffed manna for breakfast. Snap, crackle and manna the next day. <laughs> Kellogg's manna flakes. I can go on. That sounds appetizing, doesn't it? Banana bread. Banana bread. <laughs> <laughs> Without the Bermanas. <laughs> this generation might have looked like they were God's people. They had all the right marks, they'd done all the right actions, but they had disproven that they trusted God. They did it in the wrong manner. They did it in the wrong manner. Oh, oh. God bless you. Have a great week. <laughs> Um, you know what's amazing to me is that this group of people even though they rejected God after they committed themselves to him because that's what they'd done they committed themselves to him and then they rejected God and God didn't abandon his people outright he still led them through the desert he still gave them manna and quail he still protected them The covenant still remained because God is faithful and true. That generation rejected God, but God did not reject his people. True, our actions have consequences. That particular generation, well, they were totally unrepentant, I think. Perhaps if they were repentant, that's fine, but God forgave them, but they still had consequences. They never entered into that promised land. Even though they had done the wrong thing, Even though they had broken trust with God, 
God did not break trust with his people. And it reminds me also that every single generation, every individual has to choose whether we will trust God. And just because you've been brought up in a church doesn't mean you automatically trust God. Just because you've got all the the tick boxes ticked of, yes, you've done communion, yes, you've done this, yes, you've been baptized, doesn't mean anything except, do you trust God? That was their challenge. That generation, they ticked all the boxes, push came to shove, and they said, actually, we don't. God said, well, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to try with the next generation because I promised this land to you guys. Next generation have have seen God do some amazing stuff. They've just crossed over a flooded river. What will they do? You know, today, we can also, like these Israelites, take God for granted. We can be fickle and subject to bad influences. Sometimes we can deliberately choose to not do what God wants us to do. Um, Sometimes our deepest desire is not pleasing God but perhaps pleasing ourselves. Doing churchy stuff doesn't make you a Christian. It's not impressive to God. All the signs that we have today, which are, which are different signs, baptism, Lord's Supper, the gifts of the Spirit, the very many varied gifts are impressive but they're meant to be signposts pointing us to what's happening inside, to what God is doing. Signposts pointing to our trusting Jesus. That's why faith comes first. This rite of circumcision started with Abraham, but God credited Abraham as righteous before all of that. Why? Because Abraham trusted in God. Jesus tells a story about people coming to him going, Lord, we've done all these incredible things. And Jesus says, yes, but I didn't actually know you. This story is a story not about church rites and rituals. This is a story about whether or not we trust God. Because a right relationship with God comes not from the right things we do, but from the trust that we put in Jesus. So this is a new generation of Israelites. Let's jump back in time. They are standing there. They've crossed over. They're at a place called Gilgal. They've just seen God's strength and might. Uh, Remember, one of the first things we saw in the book is God going to Joshua saying, Joshua, just be strong and courageous. Why? Because I'm with you. Everywhere you go, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. We're going to see next week. Pam's really upset. It wasn't in... Where's Pam? Pam's really upset. It wasn't in this week's passage. But next week, uh, we we see the the, uh, commander of the Lord's army is standing there. And Joshua says, well, who are you with? And... And he says, well, I'm not with you, I'm not with them, I'm, I'm here as God's representative. And, and, and Joshua falls to the ground and worships because God is there, God is strong, God is mighty. And God says to him, before he does anything else, they're going to take over this land that God has promised. They're, they're just crossed over, they've got 40,000 armed men walking in front. 
and the people of Jericho we saw in verse 1 and all the kings of that region are terrified and petrified and now is the time to strike and God says right instead of going attacking them now while they're, while they're all terrified you, you guys do this right it's going to incapacitate you for quite a few days uh, and then you're going to celebrate Passover which is going to keep you for another week or so God says to Joshua, I want you to dedicate these people to me. I want you to mark them as mine. People who are chosen by me and who choose to trust me. This was a matter of obedience to God, but obedience based on their trust in him. This was about the people of Israel, the second generation, this, this new Israel. Some translation says, God says, go and do it to Israel again, a second time. This is a new start for Israel. This is them identifying with the promises of God made to Abraham who trusted God. This is about them again identifying with the God who has rescued them from Egypt. The God who has brought them safely into the land that he promised them. And, and what I love about this is that this whole thing about dedicate yourselves to me, Take the sign that you are mine. This, this all happens after they've already crossed the river into the promised land. Now, if I was running the show, and if I was God, ooh, you guys would hate that. If I was running the show, I would be sitting on the other side of the river going, right, before I show you how strong and mighty I am, you guys dedicate yourselves to me properly. You prove that you're committed to me. God doesn't do that. He says, right, I'm going to show you something awesome. And he leads them across. And then he says, right, but you trust me. How many people sitting there go, well, he can run the river. I mean, it was in flood. He might be pretty strong, but I don't think he can do much. I love how God shows how great he is and then says, do you trust me? Do you want to identify as mine? Do you want to... Do you want to Say out loud, I belong to God. I will trust Him. This isn't a requirement for God to lead His people. This is a response to God's leading His people. And they celebrated the Passover meal, how God had saved them. Um, the two are connected because only those who were circumcised were supposed to be allowed to eat the Passover meal. But the point of this is that it's, it's not only identifying with God what they do at Gilgal. It's about identifying with the God who has saved them by grace. It's about them saying, I, I want to be known as God's because God has done what I could not do. Because God has rescued me when I had no right to be rescued. Remember, the only reason they escaped out of Egypt with their firstborn sons was that that God had said, paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. This is the Israelites going, I want to be known as God's because without God, I would not be here. Some of them, quite literally, I wouldn't be here. Others of them, I wouldn't be here because we'd never have got out of Egypt. We would have still been slaves. We would never have crossed the Red Sea. We would never, we would have been camped still today on the other side of the Jordan River. This is them going, I want to be known as God's because God has rescued me when I couldn't rescue myself. 
This is a new start for God's people. And it's a start of them experiencing God's promises coming true. They eat from the fruit and the the produce of the promised land. And I find quite interesting that as they do uh, the day after Passover meal, the manna stops. Because now they don't have to have this miraculous provision of food. They, they just have to have the, the miraculous provision of food from plants. Which, by the way, is pretty incredible, isn't it? Just because it's ordinary doesn't mean it's ho-hum. But God says, I don't have to provide for you baby food anymore. Now I've given you the place where you can look after yourselves. God does that to us as well, doesn't he? At times he feeds us the baby food we need. He, he keeps us going when there's no way for us to keep going. At other times he says, right, now I want you guys. I've put you in this amazing place. Feed yourselves. I meant for you to be able to stand up on your own feet. So they started fresh. God says something very interesting in verse 9. He says, the Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal or rolling away to this day. What is this shame of your slavery in Egypt? In some of your other translations, if you look it up, they say the shame of Egypt or the reproach of Egypt. Perhaps he's meaning the shame of the Egyptian generation, those who came out of Egypt and who were ashamed of God. Perhaps he's meaning the talk by the Egyptians and the other nations, maybe even especially the Egyptians, saying, well, God has maybe taken you out of Egypt, he promised you the very best, and he's he's snookered you. God said he's going to give you a land, and you're spending all your time wandering around the desert. Ha ha! You fools. That, that works to me as the reproach or the shame of Egypt, doesn't it? You know, whatever, whatever this means, I think God is saying to the Israelites and to Joshua, you guys have committed yourself to me. I've brought you into this land. Now, everything changes. Now nobody can look at you and go, you call yourselves God's people and look at how he's treating you. No, nobody can look at you and go, yes, God isn't good enough for you. No, you look, they look at you and they say, you are God's people and your God is awesome and incredible and amazing. God has definitely not abandoned you. And you have not abandoned him. Unlike your parents' generation who looked like they were for God but actually were against him in their hearts. In the Old Testament, this rite was all about uh, showing that you were a member of the people of God and Passover, a reminder that that membership came by the grace of God alone. Uh, In the New Testament, uh, the mark of membership isn't something physical, which is actually something we see right here in the story, that surgery proves nothing. The Bible is concerned that we are Abraham's children, God's children. By faith, that our hearts are circumcised, as Jeremiah and Paul says, that we change how we 
think and speak and act. And as Christians, we have Gilgals of our own, where we've been forced to decide for ourselves, will I identify with God completely? And let me just go back and ad nauseum say, Gilgal is on the correct side of the Jordan River. We're not forced to decide whether we'll trust God completely before God shows himself to be trustworthy. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. He has risen from the dead. He has said, I am for you. He has proven over the years to so many of his saints and even to us how good he is. And here we stand, and here we stand at our Gilgals and go, will I commit to that God? If we want to associate a a, a right in the church today, an act or a signpost of trust and obedience, I I think the New Testament associates that with baptism. A, A dying with Christ, a putting off of the old self, a rising to life with him, a remembering that the shame of our slavery to sin has been broken, that God has broken every chain and that we are now his. If you've got your Bibles, just turn with me very quickly to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Just read a couple of verses for you from there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says, Don't forget that you Gentiles, that's us, except if you're Jewish, Um, No, good. Well, not good, but uh, stop digging. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. And that's what we do in baptism. We associate ourselves with the blood of Jesus. And when we celebrate the Lord's table, we associate ourselves with the fact that he rescued us when we could do nothing to save ourselves. I mean, Passover was always about God saving those who deserve to die. The Lord's Supper, our trust is all about Jesus saving, the Father saving those who deserve to die. I mean, Joshua celebrated Passover with the Israelites all these years ago, but but 2,000 years ago, another Joshua, which is basically what Jesus' name is, ate another Passover with his disciples on the eve of his rescuing us. And that, that moment is the eve of a new start for anyone who comes to him. If the shame that the Israelites felt was from those who thought that God had failed them, then today might be the same for us. People might look at us and go, you fools. Christians have just as many problems as non-Christians. If anything, Christians are more aware of it. (laughs) Didn't 
Jesus say he'd come back? Didn't the New Testament writers speak about how he'd come back really soon? Like any minute? God snookered you. He promised you the world and then he left you wandering in the desert. Are we of that generation who's ashamed of what God has done? A little bit ashamed of those promises? Or are we like the generation that started afresh? That looked back on what God had done before they had conquered the land? Before the promises were all true, but with a taste of them already, and looked back and said, I will dedicate myself to God. Yes, Joshua is the one who dedicated them, but I bet they had a a say in the matter. You know what Jesus said? Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus said, Is anything worth more than your soul? Verse 37. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, The Son of Man, that's him, will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What Jesus is saying there is you've got to choose which generation you belong to. You might have all the right marks, you might have done all the right things, but you've got to choose. Are you one who thinks that actually God has has snookered you and you're not going to trust him? Which is your choice. If you want to make that choice, you can make that choice, but that means you're going to wander in that desert. Or you're going to be one of those who goes, yes, but God has done it. God has rescued us. He did it all that way back, and, and he's doing it today, and I've seen his power at work in my life and at work in, in, the, work, uh, at work in the lives of others as well. Will I be ashamed or not? Will I start afresh with Jesus on the basis of what he has done for me? If I do, that reproach has been rolled away. God has definitely not forgotten us. He calls us his friends. But one day, there will come a day when Jesus returns. And this is what he's promised. And this is what we're called to, to trust him. When he will return and we will be gathered to meet with him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And all those who are going, Ha, you, you Christians are fools. Why do you put up with... With all of that, why don't, you just, why don't you just live life? Forget about trying to be holy. Forget about trying to be God's people. Forget about, you know, God loves us. And forget about waking up early for church on Sunday. Forget about it all. It's easier if you don't. <coughs> oh, boy, I shouldn't be saying that, should I? And then one day Jesus will turn up and everyone will go, oh gosh. Oops, or maybe something a bit more expressive. (laughs) And they'll be hiding in the rocks, and they'll be going, wow, actually. I think you were right. I think you were right to not only take the mark, I think you were right to not only hold up a signpost for God, 
signpost to your trust in him. I think you were right to actually stick by that. I did not really feel like preaching on this passage because it's, it's a difficult one. And it's not exactly stuff we talk about much these days. But actually this passage is a question of whether we trust God or not. This is a passage highlighting for us two generations, two ways to live that we saw a few weeks ago in church. If you don't know what that is, speak to Erica or Taryn or Anna Marie or Robin because we did it at Super Club as well. That's what this passage is about. Which generation are you in? And don't say, well, of course I've been in this generation for ages because actually that's what the Israelites who died in the desert would have said. And actually we've got it slightly better than them because we, we can change to the generation that trusts God at any point. Let's pray. Lord, we have been unlovely. We have been people who have been ashamed of you. We have been people who have not trusted you. Sometimes we still are. But we do trust you. Lord, we, we have staked our lives on you and we've done that for the world to see We've, we've said out loud, we trust in you. Many of us have baptized, have been baptized. And we've said we want our family and friends to know that we trust our lives to the God who has done so much for us. Lord, I pray that we would not ever let mere rites and rituals and acts define us. May we be a people who trust you from the heart, on the basis of all that you have done. Thank you that you have rescued us when we do not deserve rescue. We don't, as the song says, Lord, we don't deserve your love, but you gave it to us anyway. And so we're going to turn to you and say, we are yours. We will commit ourselves to you. We will trust ourselves to your love. And we will risk everything for that great day when you return and the shame and the reproach of our old lives and the shame and the reproach of those who think we are fools for trusting you will be rolled away. Lord, we pray that when that day comes, many of those who thought we were fools would have been overwhelmed by your foolish message. The foolish message of hope and peace and reconciliation. Thank you that one day the foolishness of men, or what men consider foolish, will be proven to be your wisdom. You have become for us wisdom, you have become for us righteousness. In you we have died and have risen. 
and you are our great hope of glory. All that we need is found in you. All that we need is in you. All that we need is found in you who have become our all in you.